This morning we are continuing our Gospel of John series, and we will conclude the prologue of the Gospel of John, which is verse 1 through 18, and today our focus will be verses 14 through 18. If you remember the introduction, the very first message of this series, the Gospel of John was written after those three other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and years after that. So probably John was fully aware that many of those readers of his Gospel are already familiar with the other's account, first witness account of Matthew and Mark and Luke. So because of that, many of those stories are not repeated in John's. Also, a lot of, um, much of John's account, and including the stories and miracles and signs, are unique to Gospel of John. And moreover, those three other Gospels are called the Synoptic Gospel. With the same view, the approach and perspective was same. And John's approach was radically different. And in those days, and um, the church had started in the first century was church was about to just blossoming everywhere. You think about this. What you think of Jesus is it hinges on whether the true church will exist or not. If you take Buddha out of Buddhism, and if you take Confucius out of Confucianism, any world, major world religion, you take that uh, religious leader out of that, it doesn't have any effect. But if you take Jesus out of Christianity, there is no longer Christianity. If you attack and succeed on the existence and the life and the suffering and death and resurrection of Christ, Christianity is no longer valid. So because of that, John's approach was unique in a sense that he starts with the clarity of declaration instead of biographical, uh, chronological storytelling. His storytelling is much of a theological. The prologue is about that. But let's... Um, get this big picture, and this is one of the important uh, basic uh, study skill for Bible when we study the scripture. Look at the forest first before you go into the trees and take the leaves and make an observation. But you will be completely lost if you don't have the big picture of the trees. Imagine that, and I, I was one of those people, I was going to Disneyland from time to time, 
But Disneyland is so wide and vast, and and there is a small land, and there is uh, future land, wonderland, whatever that is. <laughs> I always felt lost. Because one time, I decided to have the big picture. So I actually look at the map. Oh, this is where we are. So much of our study in the Gospel of John, we need this simple big picture. So this is a recap, and allow me to be just a bit redundant. Past uh, two weeks, we went over this. John's uh, structure is a basically four parts, a prologue and epilogue. The end part, uh, the beginning and end part, but the main body is chapter 1 through 12 is about his public ministry, his self-disclosure to Israel. And the chapter 13 through 20 is his private ministry, his private disclosure, self-disclosure to his own disciples. And uh, our first part of the series about this coming year will be just basically one chapter 1 through 12. Uh, until probably next summer 2020. Let's remember this picture. The prologue is all about incarnation of the word. It basically, unlike other gospels, builds up the story of baby Jesus and child Jesus and adult Jesus in public ministry and suffering and revealing the Son of God John takes a totally different approach. Start, starts with prologue, who Jesus is, declaration of his deity, Jesus is God, and builds into the incarnation, the beginning of incarnation, his early ministry, conflict with Jews because of his continually revealing his deity. Um, and preparation of for the last days, those Passion Week and his um, death and resurrection on the cross and rising on the, uh, being risen in this, on the same third day. And the private ministry is all about that Passion Week, a farewell speech, uh, and upper room dialogue, and discourse, and the passion, the cross, and the resurrection. As we conclude the prologue, I'd like to share this in a picture that is helpful. And some of you learned some classical music. Um, I was growing up in a uh, a family that a mom was trying to teach me, force teach me piano. This is one of my biggest regrets that I resisted <coughs> with all my heart. And I, um, I, I wish I could play the piano. But one thing I, I did get from this early childhood, and my, my, my sister is a composer, and um, she constantly played music and piano and violin and introduced me to 
many different my passionate love and passion uh, I do like you know blues and jazz and contemporary music I like you too too but I still remember some of the things that I listen the more I listen there are new things coming out uh, one of them was a uh, one of my very first operas Mozart's the marriage of Figaro. There is an overture. Overture is an opening introductory musical uh, movement to the actual thing. When you hear about overture, you s hear all the familiar tunes and melody that will be repeated throughout opera or throughout oratorio, throughout anything that Symphony prologue is just like that overture. John is introducing key themes of his gospel. And he lays it out. And then he will come, come, come back to one of his themes. And like I, as I said before, on Sunday, last Sunday, that in him was life, the life, this not only physical life, but the salvation, eternal life. The light, not only the physical light, the creation light, but also the spiritual light that opens our blindness to the spiritual things, to see the glory of Jesus, glory of the gospel. And an important thing for us to remember this prologue will accentuate the constant theme going over and over. In one word, prologue, we can think of it as incarnation. Public ministry, signs. As a matter of fact, chapter 1 through 12 is also called book of signs. Because if these are not just miracles, per se, from John's explanation, these were the signs to his deity. That he is the son of God indeed. And chapter 13 through 20, it can be summarized in glory. Why? His glory of his sonship, his, his deity, will continually, the purpose will be revealed. And the epilogue in chapter 21 will be, can be summarized in reinstate or recommission that Jesus. Uh, Specifically, Peter, as the future leader of the church. Today, as we focus on verses 14 through 18, I want you to think about. I want us to think about incarnation in maybe four different ways. What is the mystery of incarnation? What is the meaning of incarnation? What is the power of incarnation? And what is the glory of incarnation? As I said before, this theme of Jesus, Son of God, second person of triune God, 
becoming human is actually the theme that he will elaborate in the stories, in the, in the signs and miracles, and he, in his discourse and teaching and concluding with the resurrection. So first, what is the mystery? Mystery. Mystery is that God became human without ceasing to be God. Verse 14 is the most important verse of this prologue. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Who is this word? He's actually referring to the, the very first verses that he started. Like the, in the beginning, Genesis 1-1 type of beginning, before everything existed. And John writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything that made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The word became flesh. Who is this word? He is the pre-existent, uncreated being, the eternal word, so in other words, he has no beginning, no end. He is coexistent God as a trinity, and he is the self-existent creator and the source of all life, physical and spiritual, and the light of all men. This God became human. This is such a mystery that when you think about you could think about incarnation no matter how much we are trying to make sense out of it there is still mystery. And because of that instead of embracing the mystery of God Many, some well-meaning people or some ill-intentioned people come to the wrong conclusions, dis distortions. And typically, when we say the, uh, the word became human, the word became flesh, and God became man, and Muslims will think about God having you know, human type of relationship with Mary and gave birth to Jesus. First created being. And so is the Mormons will say something like that. Firstborn, they're taking the words like that. Or the people will take, how can man, how can God 
omnipotent, omnipresent, almighty, eternal God become human. That's impossible. And then in this mystery, we see the wonder of God. Because we will see in soon in power, God's motivation, the Father's motivation is love. Love is all about giving. For God so loved the world that he gave. If the Father has given his Son, wouldn't he give much more than other, in other things? So the first thing that I think we need to remember through the Gospel of John is this mystery of incarnation. Second thing is the meaning of incarnation. Jesus is both fully God and fully human and dwelt among us. Verses 14a and 15, once again, goes like this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John bore, John the Baptist, bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, he, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. There are quite a few misunderstandings of that, the meaning of incarnation. And including the verses from chapter, I mean, the second chapter of Philippians, Paul writes in verse 6, verse six through 8, 8, Christ Jesus, who, though he was the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself. By taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So misunderstanding number one. It does not mean Jesus stopped being God when he said emptied, emptied himself. He didn't take off the divinity, the nature of his godness. Neither does it mean Jesus is somehow half man and half God. Throughout the church history, this kind of aberration and wrong teachings and distortion was constantly reputed by the church who was guided by the scripture. It really means Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, took on the humanity, the human nature, without sin. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. John is doing this in a very uh, simple, efficient way. He used the economy of words, if you will. 
But in it, there's so much meaning in that. So much kind of backdrop of what he's kind of alluding to indirectly. The word dwelt literally means pitch his tent, pitch your tent. He's talking about the Old Testament, the Lord shows up, and then as he guides the Israelites, then Moses asks him, how will we know that we belong to you unless you are among us? The presence of God was absolutely important. And then God pitched a tent in the middle of Israelites. It's called the tabernacle, which later became temple. And I will dwell among you, as you have asked. And you are my people. I am your God. And then he makes the covenant. That was actually the foreshadowing foreshadow of what it's about to come. That Jesus actually pitched his tent. The Almighty God took on human flesh. Not a special flesh. It is the word sarks. sarks. The Greek word sarks is just like your flesh and mine. Except that born of a virgin Mary was it signified that he was born without sin, sin nature. The perfect man, as well as perfect God. This is an incredible thing. Do you know that this truth is still very applicable to us? As the people of God, his presence is among us. Jesus will return, but in the meantime, the Spirit of Christ, the Holy Spirit, resides in the church. Moreover, the new covenant promised that God will stay within us. The indwelling of the Holy Spirit in the same sense, this truth becoming true again. If you're a true believer, if you're born of God, if you are regenerated, Holy Spirit, Scripture says, resides in you, indwells in you and me. So when we, and even look at uh, Hollywood movies or the, hear the stories or even New Age teachings, we need to be mindful of distortion, slight distortion, whatever that we like Jesus to become. A lot of same, the word Jesus is not biblical Jesus. Thirdly, let's think about power, the power of incarnation. 
In other words, the impact of incarnation is this. Jesus has brought grace and truth to set us free from sin and death, which is full of grace upon grace. Verse 16. For from whom his fullness we have all received, grace upon grace, for the law was given through Moses, and grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So once again, the illusion of the Old Testament pictures are behind this. For from his fullness we have, we, we have all received grace upon grace. The first reading, it sounds like you have grace, and you put it on the, upon grace, and another grace, another grace. In, in, in some sense, it is still true. Because even Apostle Paul in, in Romans 5 says, we have access to the grace of God. The throne of grace is Wide open, there is no tabernacle, there is no curtain need, needed anymore. So that's why we are the royal highest priesthood. We are the royal priesthood, meaning that we don't need a mediator, human mediator. The only mediator, one and only mediator, Jesus himself. We don't need a priest. And that's why the reform, reformation, Christian reformation came out of that. The church, somehow the priest and the clergy was some type of mediator between the normal people and not. So in that sense, I am your pastor, I'm your teacher, I'm your spiritual leader, I'm your brother, but I am not the mediator. In, in some sense, this has to be clearly defined in every direction of our lives, even though you like some teachers on TV and you like some, some, some admire some preachers on, on radio, they have no difference than you and me. But Jesus, in his fullness, he has revealed Grace and truth. He has brought grace and truth. So grace upon grace is actually one grace exchanged for, for another grace. The first grace is Moses. <coughs> Law giving. Then later on in, in the glory Part, we will find out more of that. The verse 17, the law was given through Moses. That was grace enough. But Jesus has the fuller grace in a way. The grace and truth came in the door of salvation of grace by grace to all who believe, not just the Jews. That was open. 
In that regard, we need to remember that when Jesus had power, we're talking about same power of God the Father. And I think this will be helpful for us. Uh, the first grace came when Moses had two tablets, two ten, ten commandments, the covenant that you will keep this and I'll guide you. But even if they have disobeyed, God had always mercy on the throughout the history, right? But on that mountain, when Moses had two tablets and he makes the covenant and he comes down through such displaying the glory, and the verse 6 of Exodus 34 says this, the Lord passed, passed before him and proclaimed, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. If you summarize that, and in a simple manner, we are seeing grace and truth. Did the Old Testament believers become, were they saved because of keeping the law? Absolutely not. Because they were unable to. So that's why steadfast love and faithfulness are keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression, which is grace. But and yet, by no means clear the guilty. He has a justice and truth. Jesus came and brought the fullness of God's character, grace and truth, and set us free. How? By clearing the guilty, by paying the penalty for himself. And why was it necessary? Why did he go through such a difficult thing? Isn't God something is a snap of finger easy for, for him? Why did he become human? In order that sinless person, perfect man, to die on behalf of everyone who sinned and everyone who will be sinning died on the cross so that he paid the penalty of sin, then all is cleared that God could accept those forgiven sinners and call them, imputed Jesus' righteousness on them. Did I say that I was blown away Gospel of John already? As I meditate on this over and over, the simple gospel that I, I think there's a gospel that I read as a teenager for the first time in, in, with my own hands. 
because it's simple gospel. It's easy to understand the stories and the clarity of gospel spelled out. I loved it. I love the story of Nicodemus, the Samaritan woman at the well. The miracle of Cana, water turning into wine. It's seeing Jesus over and over into that. But when we think about this very Jesus had the same power the Almighty God, the God the Father had, And as I mentioned before, he's not, he wasn't half God and half man, and he didn't give up his di divine nature. And it's kind of mysterious, right? The only way that we could understand is in his triune, uh, relationship with the triune God, God the Father, he actually reserved the right uh, uh, he held back using his divine power and right and privilege. The only time he used was God the Father was in coinciding with his will. Father permitted. But Jesus forgave sin. Say, saying Jesus forgave sin, Jesus did miracles. But at the same time, Jesus was fully human. Romans 5, verse 8. But God demonstrated his own love toward us. While we're yet sinners, Christ died for us. The incarnation was necessary for our redemption and our salvation, our eternal life. There's a fourth and last. Glory of incarnation is just Jesus has the same glory of God the Father, full of Grace and truth, which is seen by all those who have believed in his name. Verse 4, towards the end, we have seen his glory. And then, um, as a reader of 20th century, uh, we would say, oh, I have an objection. I didn't get to see Jesus. On earth, in living in Galilee back then, they saw Jesus. Well, how can you say we have seen his glory? Um, a lot of non-Christians, people who hardened their hearts saw Jesus too, but they didn't see God the Father. And John's, once again, the spiritual meaning in that is that the eyes of the heart awakened by their faith in Jesus Christ that they have seen the Jesus. In that sense, we could say, I have seen Jesus myself. 
we, ha we have seen his glory, glory as, the, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. And later when um, the private ministry time, one of the disciples, this is Philip, said, Jesus said, show, show me God, show me the Father. And Jesus answered to him, have I been with you so long and, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? And later on, when Jesus was resurrected, Thomas said, oh, you guys seen resurrected Jesus. I wasn't there. Unless I see him and put my finger in his, in his hand and in his side, I will not believe. Jesus showed up later. Philip, do believe. Put your finger in there. And then when he knelt down, uh, Thomas said, my Lord and my God, do you believe because you've seen? Blessed are those who haven't seen and still believe. That's you and me. Have you seen the glory of Jesus? The glory of Jesus meaning that you understand the gospel in a very simple way opened up your eyes and yes Jesus is the most at least conceptually I know most treasured joy in the entire world because without him I have no eternity not, I have no hope The question is, how come people didn't see fullness of Jesus' glory? <clears throat> the theologians called it something like uh, the hiddenness of God for our protection. If God shows up and we see his fullness, we will always die. And that's why even angelic being who's serving the Lord nearby him, whenever angelic being shows up, the first word that everybody says, do not fear to everybody. They fell flat on the floor because of his glory. And obviously the glory is not just a physical light. The Mount Figuration when Jesus took Peter, James, and John only, and he transfigured. They saw glimpses of his full glory, and his face was shining. Didn't, they didn't know what to do. They fell flat on the floor. But when they came back, Jesus became normal. When Jesus returns, we will see his full glory. Believers or not believers, unbelievers. His lordship will be 
revealed every knee shall bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is the Lord. Okay, let me reap the harvest of what I've been laboring. I know this is a bit much. Maybe the younger uh, youth are thinking, oh, it's hard to follow. But when you think about simple things about who Jesus really is, the incarnation, um, the mystery, the meaning, the power and glory, it all points to the, the value of Scripture, especially the gospel. You want to know God and you want to see God, study the gospel. And the better yet, what we're about to journey through, the gospel of John, has a deliberate focus on who Jesus was and is. We will experience God in the gospel. The best way to know and experience and see God, the Father, as Son, incarnate Son, in the Gospel of John. J.C. Ryle was a bishop in 19th century in England, and he writes this poignant words, did the word become flesh? Then he is one who can be touched with the feeling of his people's infirmities because he has suffered himself being tempted. He is almighty because he is God, and yet he can feel with us because he is man. Did the word become flesh? Then he can supply us with a perfect pattern, an example for our daily life. Had he walked on among us, had he walked among us as an angel, angel or spirit, we can never have copied him. But having dwelt among us as a man, we know that the true standard of holiness is to walk even as he walked. And first John six. He's a perfect pattern because he is God, but because he is also but but he is also pattern exactly suited to our wants because he is a man. Finally, did he did the word become flesh? Then let us see in our mortal bodies of real true dignity and not defile them by sin. Vile and weak as our body may seem, it is a body which the eternal Son of God was not ashamed to take upon himself and to take up to heaven. That simple fact is a pledge that he will raise our bodies at the last day and glorify them together with his own. People of God, Crossway family, let's remember this Jesus who pitched his
his tent among us for a while, whom we can also see with spiritual eyes. Let's worship him. But and yet, let's really learn from his ways because theology is no good theology unless we emulate his character. So as we study the Gospel of John, I'm praying for relational harmony because of his love, because of his gentleness, because of his patience, because of his forgiveness, because of his forbearance. I'm praying for sense of indignance of against the unrighteousness that is happening around us. Compassion for the marginalized. A beating heart for the lost. And Jesus, yes, can Jesus can change, change us, transform us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful, mysterious truth. The truth is not just a mere concept or ideology. But Jesus himself, as a person who dwelt among us, and who is coming back. We pray that you will teach us to become like him. Help us not to write him off in one way or the other. Because he is just God. Or because he is just mere man. And we are just mindful of that your spirits help in understanding this gospel. We pray that even the young people in our among us will be able to understand and see even beyond the scholars the simple truth because their eyes are opened by the spirit. And we pray for our congregation that we would become deeply rooted in this Jesus that whom we worship and not only admire but whom we follow as in our example. Help us to be a loving community, a unified community, a forgiving community, a restoring community, we pray all these things in Jesus, the mighty name we pray. Amen.